There is a scene in Desperate Housewives when Edie dies, and they are just about to spread her ashes, which makes the girls discuss Edie, and somebody suggests, like, let's actually say one word to describe Edie, to sort of commemorate her. And everybody goes around, and Susan is like, damn it, I need four words. And everybody's like, yeah, that's such a Susan thing to do. The four words that she uses is one of a kind. This scene is stuck into my brain. It's forever just forged in there because I think about my funeral and I just genuinely think what people would say on my funeral. However, this story again popped into my brain as I was researching the case of Kelly Lane today because, truly, there can't be a month of people like Kelly Lane. I covered cannibals on this show. I covered sadists, covered people that tortured other people in basements, at gynecological chairs, kid killers, anything you can think of, I'm covering and then trying to spot patterns. So that's why all of the months are themed. Kelly Lane doesn't have a category. She is definitely one of a kind. Today, you are looped into the PAM network, and yes, I am your host, Maya. This is by all means necessary, and we are in for a long, wild case. Just a trigger warning, okay? before we even proceed. This case will fuck you up. I hope I answered to all of your questions because, well, I answered to my own questions when I do this research and it will be long and include shit ton of details. However, unless you're researching this for your own podcast or like a video or something, I would not suggest diving deeper into it. Like, I would not really suggest diving into, like, all of the other podcast episodes, the 60 minutes, like, all of the other shows covering it, going through the news articles. Not because other people are not doing it justice, don't get me wrong, they so are. However, this case is heavy. It's more for your own mental health, because this is one of the heaviest cases. I have been thinking about it every single night before going to sleep, trying to imagine what I would do in different situations in this story, what she must be thinking now. It will probably take me everything in my own power to tell you this story, but I just have to let you go, Kelly Lane. I just have to for my own mental health, because this is the wildest case. I also have never thought I will structure a case according to someone's pregnancies. So that's going to be different. As with the Britney Halloweeny episode, this is probably going to attract a couple of listeners that aren't my usual listeners, like nobody listens to me in Australia, so hey Australians, if you are here and if you are new, welcome, this is my actual accent and I cannot get used to yours, I'm sorry, I can never get used to your Australian accent, there is a great podcast which you can probably listen to if you know of this case that's called Problem Child and after listening to hours of Australian accent, I was just like, oh, they never like snap out of it. They just always talk like this. This is strange. But yes, then you could say the same for me. So the way I structure the episode and how this one is going to be structured is we're going to start with the discovery. What did people discover? How did that lead to the conviction of Kelly Lane? Then we will go into the crimes. Or in this case, that section will be structured in Kelly's pregnancies, because she had a few of them, as you will realize. Then we are going to pick up after that discovery and go on to was she ever charged, the trial, the post-mouth of events. And then again, as if it was a police investigation, we go into the background. We find out about her background, where was she born, what did she do, like how did we get here? How did we get to the point of no return? 
And then we discuss what could have motivated her. Here, mostly it will be other people's psychological findings. In certain episodes it is quite vague, but yeah, here it will be that. So this is a long one, and as I told you, trigger warnings. If you are sensitive to child's death, to pregnancy negligence, all those things, you might want to see this one out, or just take it in stages. Because... You might have a couple of meltdowns. Just, just telling you, right now this will, this will affect you mentally and it will scar you for life. Like for me, this case, even a lot more than the girl in the box case. And you all know how fucking obsessed I am with that and how scarred I am and just it's constantly just there. So Kelly Lane, it's about time to let you go. Kelly Lane tried to hide six pregnancies within seven years, by all means necessary. Multiple accompanying fake stories later. Former water polo player story has finally been exposed by a community service worker. One of her pregnancies resulted in a birth of baby Tegan, who disappeared two days old. Kelly being the only person to know where to. This is the story of the disappearance of baby Tegan. We are barely beginning and I'm already stressed. Listen, there's no there's not gonna be much humor in this episode. <laughs> and and if there has ever been a time not to cover this case is when I'm PMSing and I'm just about just the meltdown is on cue. It's it's happening. I had about ten of them yesterday. So today, yeah, let's just go dive into the case. I just get it out of the way. <sighs> Cause boy, this one is heavy. So, um, Today I'm putting in the shoes of the docks worker. Docks in Australia is Department of Community Services. And just a bit of a background of like where Kelly Lane was at the moment. Just before she was a document on John Boromnik's This is who you are, you are the community service worker today. Just before she was just a document on this guy's desk. So in February 1999, she went to the abortion clinic. She wanted to abort yet another pregnancy. But because she was at 25 weeks pregnant, and I genuinely thought like the cutoff point is usually a lot less. But apparently the cutoff here is 25 weeks and she was further along than that. So I thought it was four months, which would be like 16 weeks. But then I don't know anything and this is why I'm not pregnant. So... So the clinic sends her off, they refuse to do it. She now doesn't make any further abortion plans, so eventually, obviously, she actually gives birth to this child. And this was when she gave birth to Adam Lane. But she made a mistake, because this was the same hospital, where she tried to have one of her previous pregnancies induced. And we will talk further into detail there, but just sort of putting it into the place, so obviously red flags were raised, and more red flags came to, into play when she tried to immediately give this child for adoption. She tried to do it in something that's pulling a classic Kelly Lane, you could call it, after some time. And that was giving false details, false addresses, false phone numbers. And in this case, it will cost her her exposure. She gave details to Duncan Gillis, who was her boyfriend a long time ago. 
like a couple of years before this, and he was now engaged and everything, but she obviously gave a completely wrong address. So this hospital tries to send a letter to them, and then they get in the post like, hey, this was undeliverable. They're like, Kelly, you gave us the wrong address. She's like, no, I'm sure this was the right address. They're like, okay, cool. Let's try ringing these numbers that she has given us. The numbers just don't lead anywhere. Somebody responded to the phone. They were like, we've never heard of Kelly Lane. We've never heard of Duncan. There's no, there's nobody like this in this building. They're like, Kelly, she's like, no, I gave you all the correct details. So at this point, obviously, it's the same hospital. They know she was already pregnant. They know that she was trying to get induced, but they rejected her wanting to be induced back then. So this woman wants now this child adopted super quickly. And there seems to have been at least another child what happened to that baby so they pass it on to you John Boronik they pass it on to docs or department of community services they pass it on because she is on top of everything that she's saying on top of all the lies she's giving she's also telling them that she actually lives abroad in the UK and she needs to return to extend her visa otherwise she'll never be able to return this is why she's on a deadline and they're like hey listen you need to look into this urgently and you just have appeared to be returning from your holiday. I just love John Borovnik. This is why I'm putting into the show. He's the only bright character in this story. He has like full of tattoos. He just looks like the man you would not mess with. You would not mess with. Also, I love it that it's, it's a guy. And he was like, whoa, okay. This is red flags even for somebody who doesn't fully understand pregnancies. But the best thing, and this is why John Borovnik was the man for the job, is that he has just returned from the holiday. You know, when you return from your holiday, you're just hyped up. Like the first project that you take, you're like, yo, I have energy. I got time. I like, I'm full of ideas. I'm so creative. You take that document, you're like, oh, wow. What say you? Oh, this is her story? Not even going to brag, but I'm going to do my best job ever. Then you, Legend John, you ring British authorities because Kelly's whole spiel was that she needs to return to the UK, right? So she's there on a visa, she needs to extend the visa. So he's like, of course, British government will be able to confirm this. And yeah, yeah, you guessed it. They they couldn't. They were like, who the hell is Kelly Lane? We don't know of this person. Just imagine them getting somebody in London and be like, someone's lying to you, mate. Like, stop wasting my time. <laughs> we, we are busy here in the UK. We, we're busy. We don't have this time, mate. Then going through the files, he finds another name, and that's Julie Millwell. And that's the name that Kelly gave of the midwife. However, when he actually looks into this and tries to get in touch with Julie, well, he realizes that that's another bogus story. And not just that, but Julie Millwill was the name of the mother of Duncan Gillies, who Kelly dated a while ago. And this, had they not realized, would have actually had like some crucial implications because Julie, the mother, actually worked in the medical field and she was not a midwife. So, of course, Kelly just put her into shit because had the medical board or anybody looked into this, they might have actually taken the license off of her because, well, she's not a licensed midwife and this woman is clearly putting her as if she was. Kelly's lying skills are kind of like I think she heard somewhere in the childhood that the good lies are mostly 90% the truth. And she was like, okay, cool. Well, that, that means if I give, as long as I give somebody's actual legit name, there's no harm. There's no harm done. At this point, obviously, I think John was like, okay, this is a weird day for me. I had never had a case like this. But he had to establish whether the baby was actually born. 
It's like whether there is even a baby. Are we like actually looking for this baby? Like, do we have birth certificate? Do we have like any registration or a newborn? Something? Because like, what the hell is happening? Who is in the wrong here? And this is when he rings the hospital and has like the weirdest call because he is basically asking about baby Tegan that was born in 1996. So he's like, hey. Yeah, I'm calling about this baby in 1996. And they were like, what baby in 1996? We have a baby from 1995. And John is there like, what baby from 1995? Like, uh, how many kids? What is going on? But he looks further into this and Kelly, yes, did again give birth in 1995. But this child was actually adopted. So like, he's like, okay, cool. Fine. One baby is alive and safe. Where the hell is the baby from 1996? And why is there so many lies suddenly and nobody can track it down? What happened on that day? This is when you, John, decide to finally give it to the police. You're like, listen, there's something shady here. We cannot trace a child. And the police takes this in 2001. They obviously investigate and interview Kelly Lane to begin with. Kelly at this point was also seven months along. So she had, you know, she was carrying another child. So they were like, okay, this is great. You know, you plan to give birth to this one? What happened, by the way? Just a great segue to this is what the hell happened to your other child? To which Kelly gives them 10 different accounts of events. So all of them include her. So she sticks to one story. The name she gives them this time is Andrew Morris. But then on different occasions, she changes it to Andrew Norris. And she can't stick. She can't stick to like to one last name or the other. To which I completely understand, like, you have a fling with somebody at uni, whatever, you know, totally not a personal event, but yeah, you have, like, a fling, you make out with somebody on, like, one night stand, whatever. You might not know even her first name, let alone the last, but this is somebody you have supposedly given a child to. Like, you should maybe, maybe just know the actual name, the address, something along those lines. So she gives them a whole spiel. So it's Andrew Norris. He came with his fiance Melanie, and his mom, Noel, is it? Yeah, Noeline or Nana Norris. They all have nicknames as well. So you know it's legit. And in those different accounts, they have come to the hospital and they have picked it up. It's just like different locations. You know, in some places, like she went to the foyer to give it to them. In some, she handed her to the, in the car, in the car park. She just cannot stick to one story. And during these interviews, people are actually like, okay, Kelly, why the hell are you? Are you hiding this pregnancy? Well, like, why are you? Why have you hidden all of these pregnancies? Why was nobody seeing with you in the hospital? Why hide them? Why give this child? What's the rush? And she said that she has done all of this because she was afraid of the reaction of her parents. So, yeah. And that's because she couldn't be sure who any of the fathers of the babies might be. So she was just having flings. She wasn't sure who the dads would be, and then she knew that that just wouldn't fly with her own parents. They're like, okay, great, yeah, that's a shitty, lousy excuse. Again, where is your child? Her answers to uh, my questions about Tegan were just no. All she said was no, and um, repeated that, and then said, I don't know what you're talking about. It was just the beginning of what would prove to be a marathon 11-year police investigation. Did you want to talk? No. Did you kill the child? No, I did not. I did not do anything like that. Sorry. No. No. Okay. 
So, like I said, I'm going to have to make a lot of inquiries here. I'm going to have to go Please, guys. With Lane embroidering details as she went along, even mixing up the name of the father between Andrew Morris and Andrew Norris. I said to him, what about, can you take her? Or take it? Well, he wasn't, he wasn't really, he wasn't really happy about it. He said that I trapped him. No, it's a slap. Now, this has all taken years. Like, I'm literally doing a summary, but this has taken years. We're now in 2006, and the police is still investigating. They're still focusing. They're finding, looking up any Andrew Norris or Andrew Morris in town. Melanie Norris, Noelle Norris. They are also seeking to locate Egan Lane. So they're searching for that name in 9,000 primary schools in Australia. They're literally like discovering, looking for a freaking needle in a pool of Tegans. Two girls named Tegan Lane were found in Queensland. And another possibility was picked up at Torres Strait Island. It's just a different location. But finally, the police just excludes all of the leads. Literally, they have interviewed like all of the Andrew Norris's, Morris's, none on the new Caroline. There was absolutely no connection. They don't live in the same place. They have a fling with her ever. Another reason, this is totally my speculation, but why this took this long is, well, A, Kelly is just lying. So they had to wire her phones and then like listen to her phone conversations. But also that this started at least from the beginning. So from 2001, when they actually took the case in her dad's precinct. So the dad is now like a retired police officer, among other things. They had to probably do this on the Hush Hush, try to like have a non-biased account of events. So among the other phone call recordings now that they're following this, they hear her saying that she's scared of her dad, that's why she didn't say anything, that she's scared of her parents. So again, they have that kind of confirmed as a potential motive or anything, but she's not saying shit. They have her in the interviews saying this whole mess is due to not having thick skin. It's out of my hands. I got no choices then, got no choices now. Further and further just blaming it on everybody else but herself about this mess that she has suddenly gone to. I mean, to be honest, I think like her primary blame was falling onto the police for actually even taking this case and pulling her into this mess because she lived, she could have lived happily ever after without ever inquiring about this child. She has left that in the past. Like, now the police is just looking into it all over again. And they're going to be furious. And that's their right. Like, I understand all that. But it's hard enough telling them what I did, let alone that, that they have to speak to the police about it, you know? Like, I just can't get over that hurdle. But I have no choice. You know, I have no choice. And that's how I felt 10 years ago. And that's how I feel now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it'll actually probably be a relief once I've done it because they can call me a slut or a moron or a dickhead or whatever. That That's fine, but it's just actually going in there and doing it. Yeah. And I'm on my own. That's what I feel like. You're on your own. I'm with you. I don't know. I just feel like because I've got no choice. Yeah. You know? 
know. Like, I just feel like I'm being constantly punished. He too has. They can't find them. Yeah. He's gone too. Yeah. And the family know nothing. But I don't know the family. I'm not saying you know the family. What this couple told you? That's the other thing. Where did this policeman interview you? Down at Manly. At Manly Police Station? Yeah. And was there anybody else with him at the time? Yeah. And I hope you gave a coherent statement. What about the father and the child? I mean, why isn't there information given to you about their end of, like, where their, what their family says about all of this? Because they don't know where they are, Mum. That's what I've told you. Don't get cranky with me because you know that all these questions are going to be asked. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm trying to support you, you know. Not, yeah. My trust has been violated. Do you understand that? Yeah, I totally understand that. Right. So was the child still alive up until three years ago? Up until... Well, you said they first contacted you three years ago. Yeah, I, I, I'm under the assumption she still is now. And that he's just disappeared with the child? Yeah. I just have to go he's gone into state or something. So he took the When you left the hospital, he took the child home with him? On that day, yep. To his family, I assume? Yep. Was it just so unlike a young bloke to want to raise a child? Just... Obviously, that's what you agreed. Yeah. Well, I didn't really have too many options. You know, I could have put the child up for adoption. During this time, the police actually interviews her ex-boyfriend Duncan Gillis. I'll say his last name differently every time. Who actually dated her during those two pregnancies? He said he had no clue that she was pregnant during this time, let alone that she gave two births. We'll we'll talk later. We'll talk about that in further detail as well. So the police now literally has nothing else to work with. They submit a coronial inquest in 2005, meaning that the court actually also wants to get involved and like find out what the hell happened to this child. And the inquest results in the coroner declaring that he was comfortably satisfied that Egan Lane is in fact deceased. So this coroner just said... Yeah, like, I think that it's safe to say that this child, had she been alive, we would definitely be able to find her in one of the schools, if nothing else, if she was not registered, like, anywhere else, like, we would be able to find this child. At this point, police sends her for, like, a psychiatrist evaluation. They're like, okay, I mean, this woman has given us nine different accounts. We need her evaluated. The psychiatrist evaluates her loud and clear, deep and thoroughly. It says that he has not spotted any evidence of disturbance, there's no psychosis, and she can make decisions. To which I put, like, yes, she can, but they're just all wrong. They're just none of the decisions are right. She can make them, she's smart, she's just making them, just not thinking through them. The police is now looking into it, and they're like, okay, cool. So we have this coronial thing, like, where they think that the baby is dead. Now, can we prove foul play? It will be really hard because there's clearly nobody to corroborate. But what can we definitely get her on? And they look into the documents that where she registered Tegan's birth. And obviously she has sworn with an affidavit to everything, to everything that she has said, which they know all of those details were wrong. From the birth father to her own details to anything which would have obviously like endangered the child. So they slap a perjury charge on her. So now, before we go into the breakdown of the pregnancies, where I'm leaving it off is with one finalized. So Kelly is now definitely going to be at least getting a perjury trial, is going to go for trial at least for that. But now she's saying that Tegan is not even her child, that this is her 
friends, uni friends Lisa's child, who also like she gave details for and they couldn't track this woman down. Um, she's trying to get them not to contact the father any longer. The walls just keep crumbling down. So let's go into the life, the crimes, the breakdown of the pregnancies of Kelly Lane to just try to you know, understand a bit. How, how did we get here? What's going on? So just a couple of days as I was born, because this was November 1992, she's like, you can just picture it, like me being the, the cutest little child, Kelly. Kelly. Kelly is doing great at school. She's playing water polo professionally. She's 17 at the time and dating this guy called Erin Tayak. So she's still in high school and she falls preggers. Here she realized she was pregnant in time and she has terminated this pregnancy. So the first, we have the first termination. Erin, none the wiser, knew nothing about this. And he was a kayaker. Kayaker? I have never said this word out loud. So yeah, he would do the kayaking thing. So she goes, terminates the pregnancy, just goes back into her life. She still continues dating the guy. They still haven't broken up. However, in mid-1994, Kelly Fuller was pregnant for a second time. And this time it was alleged that people couldn't really like 100% say who the father was of, again, an unborn child. But because she had an affair with a married man allegedly, the important thing is that she terminates this pregnancy as well. However, this one was more complicated. That is because she was 20 weeks pregnant. So the clinic again said that they wouldn't abort her as the cutoff for them was 18 weeks. She's now looking for another clinic and goes to the other one on the same day. And this is when she gives them the fake details and terminates the pregnancy. So she says like, okay, cool, I'm actually like 18 weeks along. This clinic was happy to terminate her, but obviously they have taken details from her and she has given all the fake details however nobody's digging like right she has the right to abort but according to the research at this particular clinic she had to have somebody accompanying her like this podcast the problem child the australian one actually interviewed a woman and she said no i aborted like same year as kelly they would have definitely asked for somebody to be accompanying the patient so According to Kelly, nobody has ever known all the way up until she was exposed about any of these early pregnancies. So I find that shady, or maybe did she just, like, I mean, I wouldn't put it past this woman to just pass somebody on the street and be like, hey, Lisa, I'm going to go inside and abort. Can you follow me? Yeah, can you just pass, come in? You just, this is your story. You, this is your name. This is your story. I Honestly, at this point, I would not put it past her. Like, she's like, I'll, I'll pay you 50 quid. Cool. This is, you go in. This is your spiel. What nobody talks about quite in detail on this podcast is just the cost. Like at this point, she's what, 17, 18, 19. Not all of the costs would have been covered by Medicare, which is kind of like NHS, public insurance in a way, health insurance. And also this interviewee, the same interview that aborted at their clinic mentioned like they would have tried to instill in her head everything that they could about contraception. It's like once she would have aborted, they would be like, okay, hey, here's the pill. Let's just go again. This is how you take the pill. This is how often you need to do it every day. This is it. Like they would have tried to literally instill in her brain, like, let's not get you here again. Let's not see you here again. And she probably had to like at least listen to it, take the contraception. But um, yeah, yeah, I think like we can both guess where this is going because it's a breakdown on pregnancies after all. Soon after, she again continues with her life, but she's kind of dating Duncan, 
And at the same time, sleeping with one of his best mates, whose name was Paul, after a couple of months, she is pregnant again. And now people aren't sure, like, whether this was Duncan's, was it Paul's, was it somebody else's. She still continued participating in games, would go to every single, like, celebratory party, like... Water polo, you will hear from my brother, he like had a quick audio clip, like because he played water polo professionally, so I'm gonna play that later to just give you the gist, but they are heavy, they're like very much work hard, play hard, so it is working intensely, at least a couple of trainings a day, usually, the usual is like mornings and then evenings, and then they would just go out, celebrate, party out, especially after every match. So she's heavily drinking. Definitely no stranger to alcohol. This will not stop her. She would wear baggy clothes to conceal the pregnancies. And obviously, once you're like, you know, that deep in a relationship, or like even if you are just new, you can kind of see from both perspectives why the guys wouldn't just be like, oh yeah, you know, you got like a bit fat. Like, it's actually disgusting. It's actually concerning. I just don't want to focus the whole podcast episode on on that. But, however, (laughs) I'm just thinking it again as a Scorpio from the sexual point of view and how I don't think that there was much missionary or, like, eye-to-eye or just them looking at her naked body. Like, there are accounts where she would even be changing clothes in dark or, you know, they would have sex in a car or just, like, weed, well, some clothes on. So that might be, again, reasons why none of these guys noticed. <sighs> I feel the stomach, like, the stomach flag will feel differently. But then, I don't know. I was never preggers. But, yeah, I feel like the flag would feel different. Okay, cool. Something that's neglected a lot as well in this case is... The fact that she would, she was manipulative and like trying to basically protect her image and protect who, well, she wanted to be portrayed as as at all costs. So this time when she was cheating with Duncan, cheating on Duncan with Paul, she would be seen with Paul kissing out in a pub and she was seen by Aaron, again, the guy that she dated in the past. And he would basically like went and kind of like attacked her for that and then she got him arrested for being verbally abusive or something so she basically just tried to eliminate any loose ends try to protect her image at all costs because australia was looking to make water polo an olympic sport in year 2000 and she was gunning to be on that team she will be there by all means necessary at all costs she is gonna be there on it to give you a bit of an insight like whether her teammates did notice technically yes there's different reasons why they didn't tell. It was all, like, kind of gossip. The teammates would later, for the interviews, say, like, you could kind of see, like, she was placing the towels, like, on all of the pictures, kind of, like, covering her stomach or, like, just, like, any awards or cups that they would get. She would be the first one to go into the pool. But you could see, like, when they would be training because you kind of start off with, like, swimming as a warm-up. Like, if you were to do, like, the back style, you know, her stomach is, like, popping out of the water. So, like, yeah, it was, like, pretty obvious but then a kelly was snappy as shit so she would snap at you if you like and deny it if you were to ask her so they were like at some point we all stopped like this was what her first pregnancy like we all stopped like we're like what the hell is going on and two well she had a nickname kegs on legs was it kegs on legs keg on legs which technically meant that she was getting drunk like she was the one to like almost always just get smashed and they were like well if she was pregnant 
or if she wanted this child, like surely she would have been taken more responsibility. They also thought the trainers and the teammates that her mom, there's no way like her parents who were also very deeply into sports would have let her play pregnant. They're like, there's just no, there's just no way. Like, let's keep our mouth shut. Otherwise she's going to snap at us anyways. And to everybody's question, I try to answer like all of the questions that I have like in my freaking head. And mine was, why the hell isn't she aborting this child as she did with the first two? Because she has proven to notice that she would get pregnant. Now, by now, she probably knows the cutoff point. Even like, that's the problem with this case, that there are so many stages. There's so many levels. It's like, okay, you realize you're pregnant. Like, aren't you vomiting? Aren't you having like any freaking symptoms? Don't you realize like your body changing? Cool. Okay, let's say you don't. Let's say you have forgotten to take like to take the pill. But then you're like a couple of months in, you're like, okay, okay, so I have learned that the cutoff point is usually at around four months. This is when I should go. In Kelly's case, this might be the reason. And that is that only three clinics didn't require a doctor's referral for her to abort. Basically, she's out of clinics. She's just out of options to abort at least longer. I mean... She's not out of clinics in a way that she could still do it, but it would cause somebody else to know. She would need a doctor's referral, and then they might let her parents know. Yeah, you, you catch my flow. So she still has the options. She just chooses not to use them and rather to persist with her pregnancy. I told you this case was heavy and weird. We're now in 1995. 19-year-old Kelly Lane gives birth to her first child at King George V Hospital at Camperdown. The way she goes to give birth to this child is quite particular. <laughs> quite particular. I just wish this is why every single night I would be putting myself in a different position in this case and I would just be like, this is, I can never imagine letting myself get there. But then this would be my decision there's just something different within within her brain. She's at a party, right? So the her water polo team actually just played at the final of this competition. They're celebrating, they're partying hard. At this party, she's just like, oh, actually, sorry, gotta go home. Like, don't fe- feel really well. She excuses herself. Where does she go? Her water broke. She goes to the hospital. <laughs> the most normal excuse. She's not accompanied by anybody. She's just by herself gives birth by herself, is then just breastfeeding it and just there. Again, tells the doctors that she's actually visiting from Perth. So um, she gives them the address that, again, doesn't exist. The doctor there that, again, doesn't exist. She gives the name of the father as Duncan Gillis, obviously without his knowledge. Like, he is not aware that this woman just left the party saying she's not feeling well, went to the hospital, gave birth, and is just going to move on as if nothing happened. I just wonder what is going on through her head at this point. Because, of course, she's not telling. But, like, what is going on as, as you have given birth? You have actually done the action. Now you have a child. You're breastfeeding them. Of course, you want them up for adoption. But what is going on? There's no point. There's no single point in the story where Kelly stopped and reflected. I was like, okay. Let's not get this repeat like itself again. Let's actually start taking contraception. Today, day one, I'm starting taking contraception. No. So adoption process has to be quick as well. So here she pulls the excuse that she's actually training for the Olympics. She chooses the agencies and tells them she needs to leave the hospital the very next day. Because otherwise, people start asking questions. She needs to turn out for the next water polo session. 
I have not known a single person, and like that includes my mom, like not a single person that has just given birth, and it includes athletes as well. Like my mom was constantly skinny, not an athlete, but constantly skinny. Like she literally gained what, like six kgs with me, and then she just she brags about this a bit i put on the same trousers that i had before the pregnancy the day of like the day when i was leaving the hospital however even even she even like the athletes that i would know would kind of say like you need to lie down you need to chill for a couple of days like you're tired you're exhausted you you have just freaking given birth like as little complications disappear during it kelly's just like no gotta move on gotta go next day so this baby needs to disappear by then. She's saying Duncan isn't there to like sign any papers or just be as a parent because he professionally plays rugby. He does, but yeah, he's not aware of any of this and that's why he's not there. Then she swears the affidavit and said that she's separated, gives all the wrong details. And then she starts telling them a story because this adoption process is obviously taking time. So they give this child to foster care in the meantime and it's just the adoption process while Kelly is just still, you know, playing normally, showing up, like going to school, doing everything as if like nothing has happened. The hospital also posted him the letter asking him to get involved, but because she gave the wrong address, it's like it obviously never reached him. So now she it gives her the opportunity to go the different route and tell like, hey, no, we actually separated, we broke up, this is why he doesn't want anything to have with this child. This is when it starts getting sickening. Like absolutely sickening like if it wasn't enough by now this is when i started getting so pissed off i started losing it a bit again the same thing from the beginning of the story or rather the end of this story is that the agency tried the phone and then a man told them duncan never lived here and then she's like well listen actually we weren't like that public it was just a brief relationship they wouldn't have seen me there so this is why i'm telling you this like Luckily, that child does actually get adopted despite of all of this. But now, there's been two abortions and one pregnancy. She moves on. She's just... No reflection. So, okay. Let's say Kelly's not reflecting. But let us reflect. Let me answer the questions that I had myself here. So, we need to know that she is... During this whole time, she's claiming she's taking birth control. So, A, we have the option of this being the most ineffective birth control ever. Like... Or B, being the option that she's lying, which again might be the most obvious and might be the correct one. C, that she doesn't actually know how to take birth control, which again, I wouldn't put it past her. She's kind of still a teenager, although you can still, like, I mean, the World Wide Web was a thing then. Also, you can just ask. Also, I'm pretty sure after two abortions, people have actually been like, this is how you do it. Like, don't shove it up your anus. You need to actually swallow it. I just, I just don't understand. And that is as a person who, like, I take it responsibly, but I don't do the thing where, like, you know, I take it at the same time every day. Also, I have the psychological thing where I can't swallow pills, so I chew it. Still, never resulted in anything. Anything like this. So the fact that she's just taking birth control and she's saying that she is, is quite worrying, let me say that. But then I have looked into this whole denial, concealment of pregnancies. And they're apparently two different things. And people do them for different reasons. So concealed pregnancy is the one where a woman knows that she's pregnant, but does not tell anyone. So Kelly's case. Or those who are told, collude, and conceal the fact from health professionals. Again, 
this is her. A denied pregnancy is when a woman is unaware of or unable to accept the fact that she is pregnant. Which is a mixture in Kelly's case, but she is at some point aware and she just decides to conceal it. And affective denial is when the woman is intellectually aware of the pregnancy, but makes little emotional or physical preparation for the birth. Persistent denial occurs when woman discovers that pregnancy is in the third trimester, but then still fails to seek care. Denial is more common in like this study that they have done, 29% of the sample denied and only 9 concealed. But mostly it is applicable in the cases where women are minor, so when they're under the age of 18. It's mostly not done by anybody of like Kelly's age, which will become important because right now you're like, okay, so she's 17, 18, 19. But in her case, it kind of turns into a pattern where she's not like learning from it and like there's just no excuses at some point. And why do women do it? Well, some conceal it because they fear disapproval. They may have conceived in the extramarital kind of situation. There might be incestuous, incestuous paternity, so like incest. Why is that word so hard to pronounce? If there's like sexual abuse or domestic violence, for example, that might provoke them to hide and conceal the pregnancy. Again, if it's like religious or faith groups and you shouldn't actually conceal before being married, that might be one of the reasons. And what I found interesting here is, again, the silence of everybody around it. It's like you must notice like that had this been noticed and flagged to somebody a lot earlier then this would have been resolved a lot earlier. We wouldn't maybe even have to, to question where the hell is Tegan Lane today. But nobody flagged it to health professionals. And had it been a flag to a health professional, they would need to make the referral to maternity services. So they would have that obligation if they're suspecting somebody concealing or denying the pregnancy. And they would also need to make a referral to children's social care about the unborn child. And also they would begin this, obviously, if they are like underage. Even if they are underage, they would first talk to the patients. So wouldn't, they wouldn't even go to the parents because obviously they need to get to the bottom of the reasons like, are parents the problem? Like, is this why you're actually concealing? Again, driving it, like, had any of her teammates raised this, this could have been resolved. But not even teammates. What the hell was happening with those trainers? Like, do you know how many people are there at the pool when you're just, like, training, you're preparing for yourself? Like, so any of those trainers that were apparently motivating her to go to the Olympic Games, etc.? Any of these different coaches that she was seeing, any of like the actual grown-ups, when they noticed her growing and then suddenly just dropping in weight and like in stomach within like one day and continuing with her life, maybe raised some questions. Like just, it's again that story of like, well, somebody must have told them. It's like that kind of thing. Like when you pass a crime, you're like, well, like there are so many witnesses. One of them will report the crime and then nobody does because that's exactly their logic. This could have all been prevented. So now that we have reflected, because somebody, somebody must, somebody has to. We have last left Kelly with her baby Tamara being put up for the adoption. Of course, it will come as a no surprise to anybody that Kelly is pregnant again. People from the Problem Child podcast estimate that because of the due date again, that she got pregnant between Christmas and New Year's 1995. At this time, she's still with Duncan. He thinks she is the one she is still fucking about. They have the New Year's party, the party in Bermain. Again, she still probably isn't aware at this point, but neither is he. 
This is in early 1996. She begins the career as a teacher at a private school. She is teaching physical education. She's in the meantime continuing her water polo career. Her team actually represented Australia at the World Championships in Canada and they won the silver medal here. She's further progressing with this water polo and gets a spot at New South Wales team as well. Meanwhile, Gillies moves on to a different part of town. He actually managed to get enough money to get himself a house. And he starts having affairs too. So he cheats on her with a friend of hers. At her 21st birthday, though, they're still together. So 21st birthday, she's three months pregnant. She gets a car from Duncan as a present. And she's just drinking at all of these parties. It's her 21st. It's like one of the biggest drinking nights. Come on. Yes, we are all finding this very concerning. It's one of the most concerning parts I had about all of her fucking pregnancies. At this point, Tamara, because this has taken this long, as we can see, she didn't really get involved much into this adoption post, giving them all the details and just leaving them to do all of the jobs. So Tamara finally gets adopted. Meanwhile, Kelly keeps having affairs in her second semester, second trimester as well. (laughs) Semester. This is how much I know about pregnancies. I'm not the one on trial here. I'm not the one that's getting pregnant. And this is exactly why. Because I would have equal amount of interest. But I wouldn't be drinking. I would just abort and then move on with my life and reflect on that and make it not repeat itself. Until ready. Yeah. And this is again somewhere where I'm going to say I'm not going to focus this podcast on this about. Even though this could have been a completely legitimate angle where people have done it before. Uh, and that is the slut shaming in the media. Because obviously I'm just saying like, hey, she's having affairs, she's cheating, she's like not making count of who she's sleeping with, who fathers of these kids are, and people are trying to figure that out. And I feel a lot of people and a lot of investigations have gotten lost in that. Whereas there is better priorities, right? Like I understand, like, yes, you want to understand who the father and the mother of the child are. I get that. But then, first of all, you get lost in slut-shaming. Your focus is now on who she has slept with and not, like, where the baby is. Did this baby get adopted well? Where the hell is another child? Why is she getting back? You know. And, well, if you focus on, like, who the dads are, then you're not seeing, like, the bigger problem here. And that is, again, the welfare of these children. Speeding up to the beginning of September 1996... She is now in full-blown realization that she is pregnant and she wants to, as soon as possible, give birth to this child. So she goes to the hospital and is literally begging them to induce her. This is 11th of September. But the hospital notices she's only 38 years pregnant once they do that scan thing and that she is actually lying. So she's trying to give them other details. She's like, listen, I have a doula. I have like a midwife booked back home. You just induce me like I'm in like severe pain. But they reject it because they're like, well, you're actually going to put the child in danger because it's not your time to, to be induced yet. Then she goes to this hospital, which was a lot further from her home, because her mom at that point worked as the admin at her, like, her local one. And she's again, now she's giving them a different account. She says she's actually overdue. She's in huge pain. Again, they discharge her because they can figure out with like those freaking machines that she's actually not overdue. She now goes to another place, and this is Auburn Hospital, and she finally tells them she's actually 12 days overdue, 
This is her first pregnancy. This is that pregnancy from the beginning of the story where she gave the wrong midwife name, Duncan's mother's name, completely different details on the father, etc. And here it was known that she actually went to have like a checkup and they told her when she was actually going to be due and that's not going to be for like the whole of September. So here I just want you to know that she knew and just didn't care. So on the 12th of September, she gives birth to her daughter Tegan at Auburn Hospital in Western Sydney. Again, she's speaking to nobody at this maternity ward. Like, what is going on through her head is is beyond me. And this is where she's telling them that she's actually from Perth and she needs to leave the hospital as soon as possible. However, with this pregnancy, she had another complication. She had some placenta complication thing. I didn't know down what that is called. But basically... Not all of the placenta that should have been out was out. So A, this is painful. B, they have to have like a second mini operation to actually get all of this placenta out. And this is due to either risk factors after abortions or due to heavy drinking. Or in her case, probably both combined. So she stays here for two days. Now we are on September 14th, 1996. And this woman is like, okay, cool. So there is like a five-step process before we can actually discharge you, before we can actually let you go out. Cool, I understand, you know, you want to start the adoption process, but listen, you can't just leave. So they have to arrange a pediatrician. So to like check the child, is everything okay? The midwife arrangement. They have to do Guthrie's blood for the newborn, so like a blood test. She has to fill out the registration forms, the blue book, and document details of the birth, checking the baby tag, so that she is actually taking out of the hospital the right child and not like just somebody else's kid. So by noon, she realizes she's out of time, so she has completed certain parts of this like five step process. Sometime between like 10 30 and noon, she disappears with this child. So again, like, they notice that her stuff is gone. And the only way that the hospital would not have noticed her, like, at the entrance, at the exit, is had she gone through a fire exit. And then after the fire exit, you had two options. So you had a door to, like, the foyer, so, like, the entrance kind of thing, or you had a door to, like, where cleaners would exit, where, like, people would take out the trash. And that is probably the option that she has chosen. Now, before I tell you why she had to leave so urgently, which is going to be the most bizarre thing where I'm going to have to stop recording and punch myself, punch my head against the wall again, the stories. So she gave about nine different plots of events of like what has actually happened during this time, what the hell actually happened. Because between around noon, let's say noon, and 3 p.m., when she has reached her family house, baby Tegan disappeared. So one of the lies is that Andrew was in the car park. Andrew Norris, the father, obviously, done. Nobody knows him. Nobody could track him, but he's there. A second story was that baby wasn't hers. Baby was like the baby of her uni friend, Lisa Andriata. She was actually giving wrong... Ba- then there was that Andrew and the whole family collected them. And she was actually greeted by the girlfriend and the mother. The one that they looked, I think, most plausibly into, because they had a witness as well, was that she jumped into a cab and then left, like, through the car park. And then, again, it's like, what has happened to the child? They knew that this story is a lie because she said that she went through, like, automatic doors in the drive-up area and there were no automatic doors in the drive-up area. But I don't know if I noted this thing down, but there was, like, a whole cab driver there was like a cab driver that came 
along like when they were all investigating and he said like yeah I actually picked this woman up and she did have a child and she just like went out quickly and then like she returned and didn't have it and there were some bushes around so hey maybe she left in the bush and what I find suspicious is that only when they were investigating this and they wanted to forensically search her car did she lawyer up which is like, why is this not like your first point of call that you're doing before she even like lawyers up? It's like quite logical. And I have listened to like all of the podcasts out there on this case, but the most recent ones, the girls on Red Handed have covered it. And they have basically said like, well, Kelly in those instances didn't like just leave anything upon chance. Like she was the main person in charge. So she has driven herself to the hospital so why wouldn't she have driven herself and the baby out of it? Because she wouldn't have just let it for a chance, left this all like things loose. No, she just trusted in invented names. She didn't trust in actual real people. Now, are you ready for the reason why Kelly has very last minute since the 11th of September gone to the hospital, tried to have herself induced, tried to give them all those excuses? Why had she had to leave without her baby being checked properly or just leave the baby in a goddamn hospital? Why did she have to leave just before midday? Because Kelly Lane on that day could not miss out on a wedding. You wanna, you wanna take a break, go slam your head against the wall. That's it. That's that's all I have to say. Nobody fucking wins. What is this story? So, she goes home at three o'clock. She changes normally. She puts a white two-piece, which is a brave two. You can still be like bleeding. You had complications. What are you doing? Three, you're going to a wedding. You're not supposed to wear white at the wedding. I mean, that's the least of our problems, but it has to be said. No one knew shit. Duncan picked her up. They went to their friend's wedding. She was dancing, partying, all normal. Two days after giving birth and escaping. And probably, who knows what, but either at best giving the child to a complete stranger, at worst, having killed her own child just hours before just going to a wedding, pretending like nothing has happened. Nobody noticed that she was even remotely like different and her old self that is that, that that part just just gets to me every single time so of course after this wedding she's actually like okay people are gonna start asking questions right so she cancelled her midwife program with the hospital she called medicare to change her address as well and less than a month after Tegan's birth she is also working as the water polo coach so she's just moving on she's like listen don't care it's my child I have done what I thought was right with the child. I put this is the most irrelevant part of the story, but hey, it's there. On December 1996, she got her first mobile phone, which was so relevant, I guess. <laughs> but I mean, in this story, you have to think about it. Every single time when people were actually on those points trying to get, she would be giving them landline. So this is yet again why this worked for so long, why they, she wasn't discovered for so long, because people were calling landlines. It was understandable to a degree that somebody wouldn't know where Duncan and Kelly lived, because people weren't just glued to their phones. They'd be like, oh, yeah, no, you know, this is not where they live. And they're like, well, it's a landline, you know, like, would they actually have given us the correct one? 
No, I wouldn't understand it either because what the fuck? It's just thinking of random numbers. Like, again, something nobody focuses on and there's so many focus points in this story. But how is she coming up with all of these legitimate, apparently, numbers that do lead somewhere when you call them? So... Speeding up to October 1997, there was some speculation that water polo will officially be included in the Olympics. And here is when the trainers, all those coaches, would later say it like, I don't know where she was getting the idea, the motivation, whatever you want to call it, that she was actually going to make it to that Olympic team, because she never was. She, they stated she was never good enough. Like, she was strong, she was good, but was never like... Olympics good. You need to be like insanely good. But she is none the wiser. She's continuing training. But then they dropped her from the senior team. And at that same time, Duncan was also dropped from the rugby competition. So she just said, and she just needs to train harder. She has that one goal in mind. If somebody just broke it down to this girl, like, how is this story? Like, none of this should have happened. This is why you cannot have only one goal in life. Listen to me very carefully right now. I have lost it with this story. I'm so pissed off. You cannot have only one goal and just neglect everything else and have that that is all means justify the end. No, not a single goal is worth enough for any of this to have happened and for you to be that delusional for all of this time, to think like, this is your goal, whereas everybody else is like, no, she's just not good enough. And you are just like, no, 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 I just need to train harder. Get a grip, get a reality check, somebody. Cool, nobody does. <laughs> we know where this is going, nobody does, nobody does. Duncan breaks up with her finally, Jesus Christ. So he finally breaks up with her, and Kelly starts dating her brother's best friend, Adam. She's on a roll. She's now 24, and we are on to her fifth pregnancy by now. Her fifth pregnancy. Cool. So, February 1999, she is 25 weeks pregnant when she attends an abortion clinic in Queensland, and they refuse to terminate her pregnancy. So, in May 1999, again, she has no options, no antenatal care. She gives birth for a third time after five pregnancies now, and she tells a social worker this is her first child. Of course, of course she does. As this is when I clued you in on John Borovnik and social services, and this is when they start investigating Kelly after realizing this is not her first child and she's lying, let's just briefly reflect on how was somebody able to hide the pregnancies and play the water at the same time. Let's just forget about delusions, forget about Kelly's teammates not speaking up. How was she actually able to, like, do both. And this is when my bro's audio comes into play. It, it sounds like he's trying to sell you water polo as a sport. I just appreciate him for that. But I haven't told him anything about this case. I basically was like, okay, listen, you played it since you were the age of five, all the way up until you have done it in high school. You've had like trainings in the morning, in the evening. He's also gone to like one of those sports unis where you train while you study as well. So I was like, okay, just give people the idea of how much effort goes into it. Like how hard you need to train, how hard you need to rest. Is there any risk? Like how violent it is? Because obviously what we see is like somebody threading over water and trying to get a ball into the goal. And we don't actually know what is allowed because obviously it's not like football where you see like somebody getting slammed and kicked all the way around. Like... It's it's different. It's underwater. So it's like, okay, walk me through what is allowed. And, and yes, this might sound like somebody who is trying to get you to play water polo and get on the team. 
But listen carefully, because there's a couple of points, even without me telling him anything about this story, that are quite crucial in understanding of how she was able to just get away and hide all of these pregnancies. Hi, guys. So as an ex polo player, I gotta tell you, polo is tough. Um, both in, it, It's tough in two ways. The first way is that you need to work out for at least six to eight hours every single day so an average day would look something like this uh you would wake up seven eight in the morning and we would usually have the first workout uh to be longer because we are have more energy then so it would be one or two hours in the gym and then uh one or two hours in the pool so uh, it would end up being at least four hours of workout every single morning. And then uh, you would usually have lunch, rest, maybe even sleep in the afternoon to to replenish your energy and have a next workout in the evening. This would be, again, two or three hours long. Uh, so as you can see, most of your day uh, goes by working out and replenishing your energy and trying to do anything else in between would usually end up in either you being tired for the second workout or you doing things being exhausted from the first workout so you know if you're planning to have a job in between or study or anything else it's very very hard to organize that so to be a professional player you would need to focus your entire energy on water polo. Uh, in terms of looks, food, and diet, uh, generally water polo is uh, very demanding energy-wise, and it's a very physical sport. So you would need to um, be strong enough, but also be fast enough in the pool to be able to uh, swim with the other players, uh, but also not get tired when it comes to shooting or playing the game in general and you'd also need to be strong enough uh, so you can f uh, do any kind of uh, physical duels that you have in the pool um, so you know nobody really cares if you're uh, how you look as long as you can uh, both be fast and strong <laughs> so you know nobody cares but then you you kind of need to be very fit in order to manage to be both fast and strong and the second aspect of why water polo is rough is because uh as mentioned before it's a very it's a very physical sport um so you know in Warpol, like there are referees who evaluate what you're doing and you can't really punch anybody you would get uh, penalized immediately uh but there's there's also things happening underwater uh so you know some players are more fears than others and would punch you uh for absolutely no reason below the water uh, but others are less fierce, but also when it comes to physical duel, it's this, when, you, when you're this close to somebody uh, in pool, you know, hugging them constantly, pulling them constantly, um, you know, you, you get hit every single game, even if, even if it wasn't on purpose, you know, people might just 
push you with their legs as they're swimming and they don't even notice. And uh, nine out of 10 games, somebody would push you in the stomach just to start swimming faster than you. Uh, so, you know, if, if your stomach or if your physical appearance is at stake, uh, water polo is definitely not a sport uh, for you. But if you do like the challenge and uh, the, rough, the rough game, combined with uh, a lot of skill and the love that comes for this game, then, uh, then this sport is for you. And uh, that's all I have for you guys. Hope you enjoyed. Thanks, little bro. That was insightful. And you could see me getting more and more enraged as he spoke because of what he was saying. So three things that stood out for me just from what he was saying that kind of apply to this case. The first thing, you could see it from my eyes, is that for you to do it professionally, water polo needs to be your life. Like, your life kind of fits around it. Like, I remember when he would go to high school, like, he literally had to go to, well, special sports department schools the same with uni because everything fit around that we had the tournament coming out he would have to train like multiple hours and multiple times a day the school would have to accommodate that the trainers would be able to give him justification not to show up for x amount of classes so it also meant he would get away with ridiculous shit like just going to like every other class and not attending the different ones but in this case it means that for Kelly, that was her life. And everything else was secondary to it. As ridiculous as that sounds when it comes to like her being pregnant and just giving birth to all these children. The second part that he mentioned that was crucial for me is that nobody cares how you look as long as you're strong enough and you perform well. So obviously in this case, she was performing well enough to be on that team Although later, whether again it was because of the pregnancies, because of the toll that was taking, also I would probably say like drinking would take a huge toll on this, because as you could notice from like what my brother was saying, you need to take care of what you eat, like you need to take care of what you're eating, obviously alcohol and hangovers, like when you have the morning training you're gonna struggle like like a bitch. So I have a feeling it's more that than her actually even being pregnant as often, although that would probably contribute as well. But I found that to be interesting and like insightful in a way because yes, people were obviously noticing, but they didn't care because Kelly wasn't worse off as a player. The third part, and that's the one where I got like super just frustrated and concerned every time I would listen to this audio message by my bro, and that is that people are violent. Like, like yes, you don't see it because it's happening underneath the water, but it's happening on exactly those parts of the body that are kind of crucial here. Like, she did not care the risk that she was causing by possibly often, apparently according to my bro, again during all of those games being just pushed. Because what people would do, because I went swimming at the same time when my bro was doing water polo and I just hated it and gave up on it because, you know, I'm a sportsman, if anything. From what he is making it sound, it's as if people were using you as like a bouncing board, you know, like when you're doing strides in swimming and you bounce yourself off for speed and force. Well, this is what people would do in water polo because they're just spreading over water. They need something sort of like force speed to propel themselves towards the goal. And yeah, that just... That just 
it's just wrong. Everything about this is just wrong. But yeah, thanks to my bro for this perspective, the water polo perspective of it. And why these teammates might have never had a reason to speak up. So we are back where we left off, and that is when we met John Borovnik, the hero of this story. During this investigation, it obviously comes out that Kelly is pregnant again, and this time she's pregnant with her new boyfriend. So this is now her sixth pregnancy. And it's kind of dawning on her, I think, at this moment, if if it ever did, because she's sitting on the sidelines watching her teammates play water polo. And it's it's so, like, ironic in a way, because this is the one pregnancy that she was public with, because she was dating a guy, suddenly everything was like, oh, yeah, this is serious, you know, I'm actually official with somebody, and we are expecting a child, and then it's like, oh, actually, the police is investigating because you have lied that you have no, never had any other children before. So where we left off, we left it off with the police. Now the police actually passed this on to the director of public prosecutions, which is like the overseeing body. They decide basically whether the case is going to go to the court or not. And sure enough, they delivered. They're like, no, we have enough. We are going to charge her with murder. And she obviously pleads not guilty and goes out on bail. So let us briefly go on to the trial of Kelly Lane, because if her life was messy, this trial was even messier than that. So the trial lasted for four months, evidently because there was no physical evidence. They had to try to prove it beyond reasonable doubt, and that has proven to be really hard, because they had 95 lies to go on, and not much evidence. There's no, like, CCTV or anything. They have looked into it years after it happened, so there wasn't even, like, the forensics, the physical evidence that you can look into when it comes to this. So the Crown alleged that Lane became pregnant five times over seven years during the 90s, terminating two pregnancies, placing two babies up for an adoption, and allegedly murdering the baby Tegan. What the jury has heard is that she has concealed all these pregnancies in order to keep her personal image and reputation and protect it at all costs. And the main focus, obviously, was the timeline on the day of Tegan's disappearance. That has obviously been questioned by both the prosecution and the defense, and they have both tried to prove, well, the prosecution that, yes, she had plenty of time, like, where did this child end up to? Why can we not find Andrew Norris? Why can we not find the plot that actually fits into this story? Also, Kelly, as you have seen, all the way up until now, has been a problem solver. This, for me, is why this case is paining me so much. Because all the way up until now, she's solving her own problems, right? She goes, she, okay, fuck it, I can't abort, cool. I carry out this pregnancy to term, I have a child, okay, what's now the fix to this? Let's put the child into foster care, let's put her up for adoption. What would be the logical conclusion here, right? If somebody calls you to trial, you're like, okay, Andrew Norris, hi, yep, I'm going to find him. I'm going to help you guys track him down because like, it's like, yes, you can still charge me on perjury, but this is just too much, of course. I'm going to go find Andrew Norris. They managed to track this Andrew Norris guy because, of course, he must exist. She gets him to the trial. It's like, hey, Andrew, where's Tegan? Hi, Tegan, cool. I don't want anything to do with this child, but this is where they are. Now can you let me in peace? Cool, I'll do what community service for a perjury charge or whatever because I have lied on some of those documents. That's the problem solver in her. However, now there's way too many lies for her to even give them this kind of solution, which again can make a jury think that she is guilty in this case. 
The Crown again produced evidence that as a motive for murder, Elaine was prepared to abandon her children at birth to increase her chances of representing Australia in the Olympic Games in 2000. So they have presented how this would interfere with her educational plans, with her social life, in which she was held by the parents and friends. Also, they mentioned the wedding on the 14th of September, which might have been a crucial factor in this case as well, because she was choosing for a permanent solution to this potential problem where she couldn't hide the belly at the wedding. Again, what nobody focuses on about is she would have probably, her water probably wouldn't have broken this wedding, right? Tegan was supposed to be born end of September. So she could have gone in something like super baggy again because she's again hiding this pregnancy anyways from everybody and she's training and doing shit in the meantime as well. So it's not like they haven't seen her in this stage. They have seen her in the third trimester. So go then to that wedding. Don't put a child at risk. So on so many levels, wrong on so many levels. And Lane's defense, finally, what it came to is that it rested on the lack of evidence about how and where Tegan would have been killed. And they claimed that, like, even if she did kill Tegan, the Crown could not prove that she was killed deliberately or with the intention to kill. So the defense asked the judge to direct the jury, because of this lack of evidence, to find Lane not guilty of murder. And then the judge went into his chambers, and he came out, and he was like, I reject your application. Now I will not direct the jury to do that. But they're like, yo, but we couldn't prove it, you know, they couldn't prove it beyond the reasonable doubt. He's like, still shady, still the shadiest human I have seen in my life. So of course, because this trial lasted for four months, so I'm just speaking and choosing what I found to be important. So at some point, the prosecution even claimed that they found Andrew Norris, but then they bargained with the defense. This is from Red Handed, and I have... I have no clue why this was done, and they have no clue why this was done, but it's apparently correct. So they bargain with the defense, saying that they are going to drop Norris if the prosecution drops um, Kelly's witness, whose name was Natalie McKelly, and she was a childhood friend. Natalie was apparently a really good witness because she said that Kelly told her that all of this Andrew Norris thing is actually a lie. And apparently this went through for whatever the hell reason, probably because that wasn't the Andrew Norris in the first place. But then why use it as a bargaining chip? Nothing is clear. Listen. Send after four months and deliberating for a week on 13th of December 2010, the jury found Lane guilty of lying under oath in relation to the documents, so like breaching that affidavit thing. They were not able to come to a unanimous decision. It was 11 versus 1. So the judge was like, okay, cool, listen, I'll accept that. Fuck it. <laughs> Let's just finish this off. With the 11 to 1 verdict, um, on the same day, the jury found Lane guilty of murder of Tegan Lee Lane, and Lane was refused bail, and this time she did go to jail. Before the charges and the sentence was given, she actually had the, again, a psychiatric evaluation to just see, like, what is going on. And this person, again, said there's just, there's nothing wrong mentally with her. Her decisions just are based on problem solving, to which I put that, I mean, Hitler was a great problem solver as well. This woman is Hitler. That is my conclusion to all of this. Yes, it's so much unnecessary hassle. That's it. That's the one person from history I can compare you to. Cool. Aren't you happy, everybody? 
And on 15th of April 2011, she was sentenced to 18 years jail with a non-parole period of 13 years and 5 months. So she will be eligible for parole on 12th of May 2023. Now, would it be devastating? At this point, she's already, what, serving 10 years in custody. Would it be devastating that somebody innocent is in there just rotting in prison, probably not having the best treatment after all because they're considering her to be a child killer and they could technically never prove it? beyond a reasonable doubt, could they? Because there was just not enough evidence. Yes, it would. But then what we really need to remember, and I'm going to go through like what no other podcast like focuses on, like sort of like broken down, which just sticks to me, like and has stuck to me ever since I was researching this and is like the last thing I think about before going to bed. The most important thing being Kelly took the baby out of the hospital and between noon and 3 p.m., she's the only person that knows what actually happens with a baby. And she is staying silent. It is not more understandable with her being on the outside and just training water polo and then just taking everything else as like a secondary problem. However, you're in prison. You're not doing anything. You're sitting on your ass. You have all the time in the world to reflect, to come out with like, this is actually an honest story. Fuck it, I gave you like... 85 lies but I have been sitting here just thinking about it for 10 years and this is actually what has happened in that time gap but she isn't doing that is she so the main drive and the main trigger here for me is the fact that the baby existed this Tegan would now be 24 years old so yes, there is a possibility that there was an Andrew Norris. Let's say there was an Andrew Norris. She has given it to Andrew Norris and nobody is able to track any of this invented family or the baby as well. In the case that you can't actually trace the child, that usually means human trafficking, or that something has happened to this child. So their life isn't really great, is it? So if this child we are saying is still alive, well, their life isn't really great if they are, is it? And there's just no empathy, no thinking towards that by her at all. Another thing nobody focuses and drives that is all of the other children like the two adopted kids has anybody even without revealing their names looking into are they going doing okay with their adoptive families are they okay like do they even know that they are connected sort of to this case do they even care the only thing that i could find is that kelly is in touch with her last child so she is still corresponding with them from prison so <sighs> Again, trying to understand the psychology of the woman who has technically gotten rid of all of her child until they fit into the picture of her life is something that nobody like really drives at. Nobody really focuses on the fact that she's totally okay with this one kid, but she has neglected tried to abort and gotten rid of the other ones. At times, this case remind me, reminded me of two things. One is when people, instead of divorcing, like for shame reasons and for what will people think, try to kill the rest of their family or just a spouse, like Chris Watts' case, for example. The other one is less criminal, but more dickheadish, and that is exactly this last point, which is the parents that just choose to accept to have one child because it fits their image of their ideal life, but then they would leave the mothers like during their pregnancies and shit and would just be like a dickhead towards the other child. They don't care that they actually have another kid within like another setting. Other points... But what I think about truly with this case, when I was researching, I was like, why can I not find this information? Does that mean that nobody has actually looked into this from this perspective? And this is the part that pisses me off so much. 
So you know that the child definitely existed. You know that then, at a certain point, she came home without a child. Have they looked at every single one of those points between the hospital and the house? I know that the years have passed, but okay, cool. What would be the most logical options? Have they looked through the trash? Have they looked at like how many points of disposal were there in in the vicinity? What would be the route that she would take? What would be the one she was most familiar with? What would be the quickest ones, the most shadiest ones? Is there a forest? Is there a lake? Have you dried up the lake in between those two locations? Where could she have gone? Like, I understand there are multiple options, but then which one is she familiar with? Because that's usually the one that people take. Also, again, this is super grim, but are there any water drums? Are there any oil drums? Chris Watts case again, Elisa Lem's case. There a lot morbid but efficient ways of people to conceal someone's body. It's just the basics of the investigation that you would go to immediately had somebody rang 999 then and said like, hey, there's a child that has disappeared. It just doesn't seem like they have come to these conclusions back then. Also, with the lack of CCTV cameras, another one that just popped into my head and has, while I was speaking again and again, is... Okay, there's no CCTV cameras. How do you know that she is the actual person that has taken the child? Like, okay, you have a witness that is like, yeah, she has left and she has left with her stuff. But like, how do you trust that it's her? Why was the police not alarmed immediately then? And then fuck it, alarm her parents. Like this child, you just assume went with her mother. And then you're just like, oh, okay, cool, fuck it. The child is with the mother now. Like there's nothing we can do. Do you have a proof of that? Because she didn't go through those five steps. So is this child technically even okay to leave? Like, does he not have to come back to the hospital for you to do, like, blood tests and shit on him? And one last thing that I put in here that nobody focuses on is that thing, like, and this this should be your next Zoom call thing. So, hey, here here you have it. If you notice, like, I understand. You just, you don't want to say to somebody, like, hey, okay, you look like you're gaining weight. Hey, you look like you're pregnant. Hey, do you need help? first of all, would never happen back where I'm from, also would never happen if you were my friend, like that I would just be like, oh yeah, I'm completely ignoring your pregnancy because you were in denial. It would just never happen. However, let's say you are like a colleague of somebody and they have been, you have been working with them, you noticed all of that, and then you suddenly notice that they have returned the next day and they just like dropped 10 kgs and are suddenly like looking completely different, still have big tits, they have like no stomach, probably wearing clothes that are less loose and you're like hey you know this diet that you are on how did you accomplish this can you please talk to me can we process this how are you acting all normal when you have clearly dropped like 10 kgs in a day how about we start those conversations with people like kelly hopefully this is a one-of-a-kind case and you don't ever have to start those conversations. But yeah, how has nobody done that? With how many pregnancies? With like every single pregnancy. And her pulling this with every single one. God damn it, this case. Okay, let's go into her background. Let's see how we got here. Why was she doing all of this for show? Why was she concealing these pregnancies? What are her parents on about? Why did she not feel comfortable telling them anything? Let's do this, because boy, am I ready to let Kelly Lane out of my life and my brain, even though she scarred me for life. But Kelly was born as the daughter of Sandra Lane, who was a former hospital worker at Manly Hospital and was also teaching water polo while Kelly was a child. 
and Robert Lane, who was a retired police officer, but he also used to do surfing and he also used to be within the sports community and he was described by everybody as this tough guy. So the kids, all but Kelly the most, were scared of failing them. So she was brought up in this sporty community where everybody was playing sports, her the parents were technically coaches. Her dad was also coaching the rugby team, hence her connection to Duncan Gillis in the first place. And Manly, as a place in Australia, was this affluent, one of those like small places without tourists, but like with middle class citizens, where everybody knows everything and everybody knows everybody. So, hence why this kind of gossip, if it came to to surface would have fluctuated pretty quickly. So the family was well regarded, it was all about the social surfer, and what I found interesting is when I listened to the podcast The Problem Child, even they had issues finding people to speak with within the community because even after all this time, the podcast I think was released last year, even after all this time, people didn't want it to go back to the lanes, which does tell you something about who these people were in the neighborhood and still are, even after the daughter is in prison. She was educated at Macalor Girls High School and then was enrolled in the arts degree at the University of Newcastle, but she dropped out of this and went to study at the Australian College of Physical Education while working part-time at this sports Ravenswood School for Girls as a water polo coach. And as we know, she was the elite water polo player of the national and international level. So she was a member of the silver medal winning Australian junior women's team at the 1995 World Championship in Canada. So that's like when they played in Canada and she came back and had another pregnancy life. And it was her ambition to represent Australia at the Sydney Olympics in year 2000. Well, yeah, that ambition was where it all started. It was where it all began. With some people that are covering this podcast, you can kind of pinpoint the point of no return. You can sort of pinpoint, like, at what point did they decide? At what point were they triggered? With Kelly, you really can't. Like, to this day, I think, like, had she not been imprisoned, Fuck knows what child she would be on. I'm not even lying to you. Like, maybe now acceptably, maybe with that boyfriend, you know, but she would have still continued her own ways because there was never a reflection point. There was never a point where she questioned what she has done and decided not to do it in the future. So she would have probably continued being in a relationship, having sad relationships. Who knows who would be the dad of any of those kids, how would she have treated those pregnancies? So there's always that question. Yes, she wasn't convicted beyond a reasonable doubt. And imagine not committing her to the prison and where that would have ended 10 years later. So let's discuss the motives. I'll give you a couple of them because, again, she was never psychologically evaluated to have a psychosis or any disease. So people who have looked into these cases have offered a couple of explanations. One of them being repetition compulsion. This, in particular, is super interesting for me because this is that one thing where I have compared it to, like, somebody choosing to kill a partner instead of divorcing them because of the shame. So listen to this. 
this is an underlying disturbed personality dysfunction. So it's kind of like a coping mechanism. And it gives you the idea that the behavior seems to define any rational explanation because you're repeating a bad decision, technically. But the compulsion to repeat the behavior is powerful. So Dr. Diamond, the psychiatrist um, who said said that there was no evidence that she's suffering from any mental illness and disorder, and that she's capable of carrying out these difficult actions in order to solve the problems that are in front of her, again alluding on to her being the problem solver. And this is a similar state of mind that they believe that determined the fate of Tegan Lane. The most inappropriate lines that I put here, I put she's Olivia, she's Olivia Pope in this bitch. Olivia Pope, like Carrie Washington must be like turning in her fucking life because she's alive, Maya. She must be turning in her bed about <laughs> this online, like it's handled. <laughs> Just imagine Kelly Lane like answering a phone, you know, it's like a flip phone. She's like flipping it like it's been handled. And you're like, what's been handled? Please don't handle anything any longer. Please don't make a single decision. Why they're talking about this repetition compulsion? That is because everybody's noticing that it's unlikely somebody would just keep becoming pregnant repeatedly just because of the lack of you actually taking contraception. So at some point you would kind of stop to reflect it, being like, okay, maybe I should take another contraceptive if this one doesn't work. But as we know, we don't think that she was actually taking contraception to begin with. And this psychiatrist again said that they thought that she was overriding the motive related to her wish to be pregnant in the face of having to abort two previous pregnancies. But she would never process the consequences of the pregnancy and having to deal with a baby so she would continue to pursue education, water polo career, social relationships, as if she wasn't pregnant. Exactly. Never stopping to reflect, to actually think like what she's putting herself and the child through. So he described this as the powerful drive to revisit an unresolved, previous, unsatisfactory and emotionally distressing experience that can be corrected by managing the current one more successfully. I mean, we all know a person who is kind of repeating their own mistakes, whether it is to do with alcohol, drugs, usually weed and they're like I mean no this time I'm doing it more responsibly like I am only I'm not an alcoholic I'm only drinking on xyz days and they're like no, no no I have a plan this is all gonna work out that was Kelly just a lot more advanced on that level and not actually telling that to anybody so just like keeping that to herself because there's no chance for nine months that it never occurred in her head like okay this is how I solve this problem it's just that she would let it all the way up until the last couple of days before she is about to give birth to actually act on it. But I find this to be super interesting. Let me know what you think about this one. I have never heard or like seen about this one, but it kind of like can explain certain things that you see like your friends or family do, for example. But she just pushed it to the very next level. The second theory, or well, combined with the first one, is that she was a narcissist. That she was driven by shame and how people perceive her which is what narcissists do. And I love this. When I heard this, I was like, I must include it, is that she was in love with the illusion of herself. So this explains to me her water polo bit. Like, how was she that delusional? Because she knew in her head, like she's like, this is the illusion of myself. This is who I aspire to be. I will be it at all costs. Everything else is secondary. Narcissists, as we know, can't react well to criticism. And again, it would fit into the story of her keeping that last baby. Because that last baby didn't prevent her from the Olympic glory. It fit into that illusion of who she was then to herself. It's like into her having a boyfriend, having a life, 
because again to her everything else is in the past she has never reflected on it but those pregnancies don't matter those are like the decisions from the past that brought me when researching motives to look into philly's side because i was kind of trying to find out okay but one motivation might be let's say that she did again this is alleged there was never physical evidence but let's say we are thinking she has killed tegan lane why do people do it usually mothers kill babies because either a couple of reasons either due to emotional neglect a lot of them come from rich families and mentally they can't even comprehend the pregnancy so this person said like mentally they're actually at the age of a 12 year old should explain a lot, wouldn't it? So Philip Presnick, the first psychiatrist, published the research on Philip's side, and he said there are five main motives. So one is altruistic, altruistic being that they think that the world is too cruel for this child. The other one is fatal maltreatment. Third is unwanted child, spousal revenge. But the one that would fit here would be unwanted child, Philip's side. And that's that the child is no longer wanted and the act is undertaken to achieve this. And this can often apply to the killing of newborns. Another theory for the motive here, I thought like it, if thinking about this, like maybe she rationalized it and I think this was instilled into her since childhood. And that was the being one of the boys. Because of the circumstances that she was raised in, that both of her parents were kind of coaches, there wasn't too much like mother-daughter chats. She was actually like trained by both sort of guided by both, there was no room for failure. And hence, she felt unable to seek support from the parents, from the family, from the friends. I think it's a combo of a few of them, but the first one I put in there was because that was so, like, groundbreaking to me, and I think that that genuinely would describe, like, a bit of the psychological thing that she has had, together then with the illusion of herself, rather than the actual picture of and like how her life actually looked so the last one would of course be reputation and everybody in this podcast the problem child that they interviewed would describe her like she was sporty she was well liked but that was like on the surface right because of course you wouldn't want to spy the lanes but if you are not her friend you couldn't actually like approach her and go and be like hey so is everything okay because she would just be really snappy And that is exactly that, because how can you assume, how can you even assume that I'm not doing well, I'm doing so perfect, how can you, she can't respond to criticism, she can't respond to you snapping at her at all. And this ultimately drives us back to that trial where the Crown tried to produce the evidence that the motive for her abandoning the children was for her to increase the chances of representing Australia, which, as we know, just was so in vain just because of her illusion that she had about herself if somebody just set this girl down just a coach just one coach one trainer being like hey listen you're actually not as good and she would be like oh my god but i'll train faster i'll I'll train harder no you're just not at this level there are levels of people in sports you're really good but not as good please stop aborting like i can see you're pregnant stop aborting your pregnant just somebody Please, we need better coaches. We need better trainers in life. I'm going to tear up. Fuck this. Okay. Her friend's wedding being the crucial factor as well. And just again to give you the perception of her parents and what their thoughts were on this. Even after, like even after she was convicted, her parents said that the way she managed to get through all of this was the sign of strength. We should actually admire how Caroline got through all of this. She was actually a problem solver. 
it's a sign of strength. I mean, if that doesn't tell you about the style of parenting and about how we are all in this situation, how did this case even come about? I don't know what does. And driving it back to my plot where I'm comparing this to somebody killing a spouse instead of divorcing them, it's again that illusion that you have about yourself because this doesn't fit into your image of yourself. So that's what I never took as a perspective because, you know, obviously, if you were, let's say, to like, don't do this shit, by the way, not giving any advice, but like, you know, like when we see portrayal of this in movies and series, the scenarios that they put into play is that the person has left them. It's on them, right? The blame is always on somebody else. It's like, oh, they have left. Oh, they have disappeared. I don't know what. Something must have happened to them. Somebody took them. Somebody needs to look into this. It's always, so you are not at fault, right? Whereas if you were to divorce them, then you would be the person with the problem. It doesn't fit into your illusion of who you are in your head. But in this case, it's still okay. It's on them, even though you are hiding that you actually killed them. And just one last point. People have said that due to this, even after Tegan, obviously, even after what happened, she continued having babies. And they're like, well, why? You know, like, obviously here this was a big obstacle, whatever happened to baby Tegan. And people have said, well, due to this reputation thing, like, she had to still keep going at it. So obviously now she was looking for an easier solution. So as we know from, like, all of her lives, once she would go to these hospitals and tell them, like, you need to induce me, immediately something would trigger in her head because she is smart after all. When she would go to another hospital to invent a different lie, to invent something more traumatizing. So now after baby Tegan, she was obviously again looking for another child to be adopted and she was trying to find the easier way because she knew the system by now and she was trying to trick it and thankfully to John Porovnik to one man that came back from his holiday this was all uncovered and boy am I ready to leave you behind Kelly Lane you have been in my head for seven days I was losing sleep I was having meltdowns I was like how is this even possible and most saddeningly I would be lying in bed every night and would be like okay just imagine you're Kelly Lane right now it's like you're both lying in bed. She's in Australia, so she's like having breakfast. Ignore that, right? She's lying in bed. You're lying in bed. What are you thinking? Like, how are you after 10 years still knowing? It must haunt you. It must come into your mind and you must still be thinking about it for at least another few years until you're out and you actually have different distractions. Again, trying to fit yourself into the illusion of something else. And I have realized, hey, I need a better thoughts before my sleep. But also, B, even though this is all about motive and like now there are psychological explanations towards this, yes, we can understand it better. But it doesn't mean that we should necessarily comprehend it and that we should be able to process it in our heads. Because if we were able to do that, that would put us in the same boat psychologically as Kelly Lane. That's it. Until next Monday, keep making the world a better place, one motive at a time. And don't let this story break you. Don't let this story break you. Repeat it. Repeat it to herself until you can process it. Where is the outro music? Never fucking ready. Don't let this story break you. Don't let it break you. It will not break you.